I am one of a small but hearty breed of uh, uh, interpretists left in the world who are called uh, textualists or originalists. Not, not strict constructionist. I, I am not a, I'm, no, I will get to that. I am not a strict constructionist. But I am a textualist. I believe you, uh, people ask me, well, you know, why, when did you become a textualist? What caused you to become a textualist? You know, you, when did you begin eating human beings? You know, as though it's some, it's some, as though it's some weird thing, you know. I, I mean, I, when did you begin to become not a textualist? You have a text. You should read the text. I, I... <laughs> it, it... The voice you just heard was that of uh, Supreme Court Associate Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, we at the Acton Institute had the real privilege of having Justice Scalia join us uh, back in 1997, June of 1997. For our seventh anniversary dinner, where he delivered the keynote address, which was entitled On Interpreting the Constitution, uh, we have placed that full address uh, online for you to listen to, uh, and I will include it in the post uh, on the Power Blog, where I post this podcast, uh, to make sure that you see it and have an opportunity to listen. It's about a half hour, and uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic speech, probably one of the best that we've ever had at our annual dinners. Uh, Justice Scalia proves himself to be a brilliant legal mind uh, and a very wise man, but also uh, just a, an incredibly funny uh, and, and engaging personality uh, with a great a sense of humor, a great wit about him. Uh, and the, the amazing thing about the speech, uh, ha- having been recorded in 1997, is that the issues that he talks about then, uh, with the way that the Constitution is being interpreted in the modern era, are still live today. In fact, they're, I, I would argue they're some of the central issues that the country has to face about how, how do we go forward as a country with this document, the Constitution at the center, supposedly, of our country. Uh, what does the Constitution even mean? Uh, and Justice Scalia goes, goes into that in great detail and uh, with great wit uh, and, uh, and, and a great sense of humor. And I hope that you will take the time to uh, listen to Justice Scalia's Remarks. They're well worth your time and very important to consider his remarks uh, in, a, in a season where we're looking at a, a vitally important presidential election to boot. But uh, with, with Justice Scalia's passing, it's rather a, a rather timely event considering the uh, interview that we have today on Radio Free Acton. By the way, my name's Mark Vandermoss. Good to have you along on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Uh, today we're talking with Ryan T. Anderson of the Heritage Foundation. Ryan Anderson uh, holds the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellowship in American Principles and Public Policy at Heritage. And he has done a lot of work over the last couple of years uh, dealing with some major Supreme Court decisions uh, relating to religious liberty, uh, specifically the Hobby Lobby case uh, of 2000, uh, I believe it was 2014, which dealt with uh, religious liberty uh, in the workplace, whether or not an owner of a corporation has the right to exercise religious liberty and and to what extent they have the right to exercise religious liberty in the operation of their business. And then, of course, the Obergefell case of 2015, uh, which dealt with uh, the issue of marriage uh, and the definition of marriage. And Ryan Anderson has been writing and speaking on these topics for a long time. He's an expert in religious liberty. 
And it's good to have an opportunity to sit down with him and ask him some of these questions about what the state of religious liberty in the United States is. What are the threats? What are the opportunities? Uh, We cover all of that. And uh, without further ado, I want to take you over to my interview with Ryan Anderson of the Heritage Foundation. Well, we are back on Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. And uh, we have a guest today on uh, Radio Free Acton who is an expert in, uh, in, in the relationship between the two, specifically in religious liberty. A uh, very important topic for all of us to talk about, especially those of us who are people of faith uh, in the current environment in, in the United States. It's important to be uh, up on all of the different uh, events that are happening, the different changes that are happening, the threats and opportunities that we face. And I'm really pleased to have with me Ryan Anderson uh, from the Heritage Foundation. He serves there as the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow in American Principles and Public Policy. And uh, Ryan, uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming in and for uh, sitting in on the podcast with us. Oh, sure thing. Happy to be with you today. And uh, Ryan is here today because he delivered an uh, Acton Lecture, uh, Act Lecture Series uh, talk on... Uh, it, Ryan, remind me what the title was again. Sure. It was, the, the, the title of the lecture was based on the title of the book, uh, Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. See, I, I knew that. I just needed someone to you know, prod me a little bit. And, and marriage and religious freedom is a, I mean, obviously with the, the cases that we've seen in the last couple of years, the, the, uh, the, the case before the Supreme Court, Obergefell, I I cannot pronounce that. I cannot. No one can. I said to you a minute ago, if they're, if they're going to have a landmark case, they should give it a much easier name to pronounce. But the Obergefell case, uh, that, uh, essentially opened up, uh, marriage to same-sex couples nationwide, um, that's that's obviously a huge decision, um, and and of course the Hobby Lobby case too is another one that's uh, that that has had uh, it was a really big controversy in the first place, and it's uh, got a lot of implications that that flow out from it. So I guess uh, the the way to start this, and and uh, since I, I've got an expert here who can who can talk about this, the way I want to start is to say, let's talk about the historic American understanding of. Uh, freedom of religion. Obviously, there are people who talk about freedom of religion. There are people who talk about freedom of worship. There are people who believe that religion absolutely has a place in the public square. There are people who believe it should be out. Um, so historically, you know, the, from the founding fathers on, what have Americans believed about the role of religion in public life? Sure. I mean, so th- th- those are great questions. The role of religion in public life, uh, historically, the founders and Americas in general thought religion in public life was a good thing. Uh, that religion was part of the human experience and that public life was supposed to embrace all parts of the human experience. So what uh, Father Richard John Newhouse called the naked public square was a very late development. It was something that was taking place in the 80s and the 90s, uh, the secularization of America in which religion was a private concern to be relegated to the four walls of your home or the four walls of your chapel. Uh, that's not what the founders' understanding of religion and the role of religion in a country like ours was, was that religion was a part of American life like everything else that's a part of American life, and therefore it has a legitimate role in the public square, just like everything else in American life. Religious freedom, therefore, was understood to be protecting the space for religion to flourish at every part of life. Uh, the free exercise of religion wasn't simply the right to worship. The free exercise of religion wasn't just freedom to worship in the four walls of your home or the four walls of your church. The free exercise of religion was the space for you, the freedom for you to live out your beliefs, not just Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday as well. 
the ability to bring your convictions to bear at your school, at your charity, and in your business. So what was important about the Hobby Lobby case, which you mentioned, was that the Supreme Court vindicated the right of the evangelical family, the Greens, who own Hobby Lobby, and then the um, Mennonite family, um, the Hans, who owned Conestoga Wood. Those were the two cases that were heard by the Supreme Court, both of it families, people of faith, both of them running businesses. And the court said religious freedom is about you guys as well, because religion is about you guys as well. And the Constitution, in this case, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, protects the free exercise of religion, not just for priests and pastors, not just for churches and charities, but also for people of faith in their lay vocations. Yes. And that's vitally important. Yeah, it, it occurs to me, just to, to go off on a, not really a tangent here, but the thought occurs to me that any belief system that a person holds uh, within them, if you are restricted from allowing those beliefs, those core beliefs about who you are, who God is or God isn't, who, how human beings relate to each other, the nature of humanity, if you're not allowed to make those operative in, in your whole life, you don't really have freedom. You have no freedom at all. You're, you're completely restricted. What good is um, religious freedom if all it means is that you're free to believe what you want to believe, but you're not free to manifest those beliefs through your actions? Exactly. Right? So, so religious freedom in the full sense needs to be the ability to teach your children those beliefs. So you have to have freedom of education with respect to religion, to serve others. So we need to have charities uh, homeless shelters and adoption agencies free to operate in accordance with those beliefs. And then also freedom to run your uh, your business, your livelihood, your day-to-day job in accordance with your beliefs. That's, that's one of the things that Acton does so well mm-hmm. is show that there's no disconnect between our economic life and our faith life, or at least there shouldn't be a disconnect, that our economic lives and our faith lives should be integrated both as consumers and as producers. So both as um, workers and as customers, we need to be thinking, how does our faith impact our economic choices? How does it impact our business choices, our consumption choices, our charitable giving choices? Uh, we don't want to say that it's just about worshiping God uh, on the weekend. It needs yeah. to be integrated every day of the week, every moment of every day. And to go even further on this tangent, it's not even uh, purely a religious freedom issue. In, in the case of, uh, of Hobby Lobby or Conestoga, it's actually a, a freedom to contract with employees freely in the way that you, in a way that comports with your conscience, of course, but you have the freedom you should have, at least, the freedom to do business in a manner that is aligned with yep. your conscience. That, that that's such a good point. That this is this is one of the kind of value adds of Acton is that Acton can show how economic freedom and religious freedom go together. Uh, a point that I've made is that if James Madison or Thomas Jefferson were around today and they heard about the Hobby Lobby case, the first thing they would say wouldn't be about religious liberty. It would be about economic liberty. They mm. would say, "What authorizes the federal government's Department of Health and Human Service to issue this mandate in the first place?" That on their understanding, the Constitution, the federal government that they created, there was no power, one, for Obamacare in the first place, or two, for an HHS mandate in the first place. And only third would they then say, and of course it can't be applied in this discriminatory way towards uh, uh, religious believers. But the first two problems would be just the problem of the overgrowth of government regulating more aspects of our lives. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. No, I, I, I get the sense in a lot of ways the founders were they to come back today. I, I, and I think it's a legitimate question. Would they start another revolution? <laughs> I, I hate to say that, you know, but but you look at the, the, the way that the federal government was established, what it was intended to be, and what it has morphed into with the introduction of uh, really the progressive movement, early 20th century, late 19th century. Uh, the, the, the entire concept of American governance has almost been flipped on its head from what the founders actually wanted. I think that's, uh, that, that's largely right, because if you think about it, they wanted to have a very limited government with the federal government doing very strictly enumerated things, uh, where the states would be where all the primary action would be taking place. And now it's been reversed so that the federal government seems to be doing everything that any type of government does. It's not yeah. a limited and enumerated uh, power. No, the federal government is also almost the master of the states now, which is uh, distinctly not what they wanted. Uh, let's let's move back to the question of religious liberty, though. With the uh, Obergefell case, I got it that time. Obergefell and uh, and with Hobby Lobby, there's obviously been a lot of there, there's a lot of struggle going on right now over religious liberty in our country, and so. What has been the impact of these two cases? Obviously, one of them, I, I think folks who believe in religious liberty, a, a full-throated, a full-bodied religious liberty, would be happy about. The other one causes a lot of concern. So where, where, what's the state of play right yeah, now? Great question. So what's interesting about both of these cases um, is that the first one got liberals upset because they were um, outraged that the Supreme Court just upheld the rights of people of faith in business. Uh, especially because it was evangelical people of yes. faith with conservative viewpoints about sex. Um, it seems like there was a consensus about religious liberty when religious liberty meant protecting minority faiths who had kind of um, uh, non-mainstream uh, uh, religious beliefs. Sure, yeah. Then all of a sudden, the consensus was broken when it meant, wait, we might be protecting pro-life evangelicals, <laughs> yep. but we don't want religious freedom for them. Yep. And then after the Obergefell decision, the concern here was that uh, what's going to be the status of people of faith who continue believing the truth about marriage? Um, Justice Alito had asked this question during oral arguments, and the response from the Solicitor General of the United States was not reassuring. Uh, he, when asked about the nonprofit tax status of Christian schools and if they would lose that nonprofit tax, tax, tax status, the Solicitor General said, that's going to be an issue. I don't deny it, Justice Alito. It's going to be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um and so many people, the, the, the one-two punch here would be uh, the criticism of religious freedom after uh, Hobby Lobby was that we should be rescinding Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. We should be limiting the Religious Freedom Restoration Acts so they only protect religious nonprofits. And after Obergefell, we shouldn't be granting any religious liberty protections to people who believe marriage is the union of man and a woman because those people— are bigots and those people hold the wrong beliefs. The, essentially, marriage. the equivalent of Bull Connor or uh, the governor standing in the schoolhouse door. Yes, exactly. It, and it's not really an equivalence at all in in no. reality. No, of course not. But that's the so the argument that's being made is that well, sure, you have a, a right to worship the way you want to. So you can believe whatever you want to believe about marriage, but you can't run a school with that belief. You can't run a charity with that belief, and you certainly can't run a business with that belief. Yeah, that's very interesting. There was a case that I read about just just recently in Massachusetts where a a Catholic school and and it I mean it intended to be a fully Catholic school uh, laid out requirements for all their employees, which I I honestly I think is not only reasonable but they'd be stupid not to if they're trying to do an actual Catholic education. They hired a gentleman to be a custodian, I believe it was, and after uh, 
he was hired, and presumably after he was informed of the fact that he was expected to live his life in accord with Catholic principle, it came out that he had a homosexual partner, and the the school said, "Well, this is incompatible as it is. Um, it, it's not it's not a matter of we hate you and we want you gone. It's simply a matter of we are trying to set this example for the children to live according to the Catholic faith." And a court just upheld uh, his right to work there, in spite of the fact that it's a Catholic school. And it, I I'm, I just marvel at this uh, this attitude. Uh, Again, it's difficult for me to wrap my head around that, that we, we're simply not going to be, and when I say we, I'm talking about people, people of faith, people who have conscience issues with these issues, we're simply not going to be left alone. We're not going to be, I've heard, uh, I think it was Eric Erickson at Red State who said, you will be made to care. And that seems like what's going on. That's exactly right. So one of the things that I do um, in Truth Overruled, the future of marriage and religious freedom, is I tell about a dozen stories of people who have been made to care. I tell the stories of Catholic charity adoption agencies, of schools, of bakers, florists, photographers, of a fire chief, of, uh, of pastor, of people who the government have said, you will not have the freedom to live in accordance with your beliefs about marriage as the union of a man and a woman. Uh, the, the example you just mentioned, the um, Massachusetts school, that takes place after Truth Overruled goes to the printers. So yeah. that's not in the book, but just to bring listeners up, what took place there was that I can't remember if it was a, a custodial staff or a member of the cafeteria staff, but you had a staff yeah, it, member. It might have been cafeteria, cafeteria yeah. And, um, but they say, look, all of our employees, uh, we want to be living out uh, consistently with Catholic teaching because we think all of our employees are going to be interacting with students and setting an example for Absolutely. students. And we don't want to say that only the teachers need to live according to the truth. We want to say all people should live in accordance with the truth so that the students, when they grow up, regardless of what sort of job they get in life, we want all of our students to be living out the truth. And so we want all of our staff members to be modeling that for the students. My understanding was that he listed his um, same-sex partner as his emergency contact, and that was how they okay. found out yep. about it. But either way, it's I don't see how you could say that a Catholic school doesn't have the right to run it in accordance with Catholic principles. Um, and he is free to live how he wants to and to work with whoever wants to hire him, but there is no right to force someone else to hire you when your values conflict with the employer's values. And in this case conflict with the school's values. The reason that parents send their kids to this school is to get a certain type of educational environment. Yeah. So what I try to do in Truth Over World is make the arguments for why uh, Catholic adoption agencies or Catholic schools or evangelical adoption agencies and schools, Bingham Young University, all sorts of people who believe that marriage is the union of a man and a woman should be free from government coercion and government discrimination. They should be free to live out their understanding of marriage in the public square without any government penalties. And unfortunately, that's not what's taking place right now. What are the, uh, in the current environment, what are the biggest threats to religious liberty? I mean, just the the, the clear threats to religious liberty that people should be aware of right now. Sure. Uh, so right now, the um, ACLU, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, is suing uh, several Catholic hospitals because they don't perform abortion. Uh, right now, the Little Sisters of the Poor are before the U.S. Supreme Court suing the Obama administration because the Obama administration will not exempt them from the HHS mandate. The Obama administration has given the Little Sisters of the Poor what it calls a, an accommodation, uh, which means they still have to provide the health coverage that's objectionable to them, but they don't provide it directly. 
Uh, yeah, they, they, say, they pass it off to somebody exactly. else to sign the form, which uh, the, I, I don't really see the moral distinction there. But Neither apparently, do they. A, <laughs> apparently a judge does. So, uh, but, but the nuns don't. And that's yeah. what's important here. The nuns say, all right, so you're telling us that we shouldn't do what we find objectable ourselves. We should hire someone else to do it on our behalf. So it's kind of like, well, I can't kill this person, but I can hire the hitman. Hire the no, hitman. it doesn't yeah. make it any better. Yeah, exactly. And so they're in court. And what's interesting is that the exemption that— uh, the Obama administration has granted is to houses of worship. So when the nuns are inside of their chapel, they're exempt from the HHS mandate. When the nuns are taking care of the elderly and the poor and the sick and the dying, they're not exempt. So they only get religious liberty when they're praying, not when they're ministering to the least among us. That needs to be rectified. It's it's interesting to me, just as you say that, how f- how little the broader culture in the United States really understands religion at all. And I, I think we, we talked a little bit about beforehand about the media culture and the academic culture that exists in America now, very elite, very left-wing, uh, very closed, to, uh, frankly, closed to outside ideas or, or challenges to their way of thinking. Uh, it, it seems as these people don't, don't really understand anymore what religion is outside of saying, uh, for instance, in the case of Christianity, oh, Jesus said, you know, love your neighbor. And Jesus was this nice guy and we all need to be nice and, and we need to love our neighbors. Well, that's true, but there's a, it, there's so much more. There's so much more in, in, in the culture refuses to understand it or just doesn't care enough to look yeah. into it. And then they insist that they're going to advance their idea of what things should be over against actual religious believers. It's it's infuriating, to be honest. You know, there, there are two um, ideas from Benedict XVI that I think are helpful here. He wrote an encyclical, Caritas in Veritate, love in the truth. And so you're right. Jesus says we should love one another, but we have to love people in accordance with the truth, the truth about human dignity, the truth about human flourishing. Um, being loving people isn't just a matter of being nice as the secular media understands being nice. Uh, loving people is a self-sacrificial love in the way that Jesus loves the church. And that means you have to love in truth. Yes. And that was Benedict's point. He also had a, a, a wonderful phrase in Deus Caritas Est, uh, his first encyclical, God is Love. And he says that the um, taking care of widows and orphans is as essential to the mission of a Christian as preaching the word and celebrating the sacraments. So think about what the powerful message there is. I mean, especially for, for a Catholic where preaching the, the gospel, celebrating the sacraments is kind of, you know, the quintessential sure. aspect. And he's saying that is just as essential to our mission as taking care of widows and orphans. Yeah. And yet what the U.S. government right now is saying to the little sisters of the poor is that, oh, no, you get religious liberty when you're in your chapel, not when you're taking care of widows and orphans. They are, just think about that. They are dictating to religious people the boundaries of their religion essentially is what they're doing and the government as far as i'm as far as i'm aware there's still a line in there that the government itself cannot establish a religion it seems to me that's almost what's happening here yeah so it's it's interesting that the the, the criticism that the dissenting justices have written whenever uh, the little sisters or a similar case was um uh, went went against them yeah they have said wait you're judging the little sisters religious beliefs so the way that this works is that we get to judge whether or not the government has a compelling state interest that it's pursuing in the least restrictive way possible that might override a religious belief. We don't get to judge the validity or the centrality of that religious belief. Yep. So the argument here can't be that the Little Sisters have their moral theology wrong. And yet several just judges have more or less said that when ruling against 
the Little Sisters or the University of Notre Dame or Wheaton College. The good judges have said, no, what we need to do here is we have to analyze. This is what the religious people believe. This is how the government is burdening that belief. Is the government justified in doing so? And the test here is, is it doing it for a compelling government interest in the least restrictive way possible? What does that look like? You could say if the government has a law against murder with no exceptions, is there a compelling state? And let's say there's a sincere religious belief that says you sometimes have to kill people. They're not going to say whether or not that religious belief is true or false. They're just going to say, all right, it's a sincere religious belief. Mm -hmm. The government's burdening it by sending you to jail if you murder people. Yeah. Is there a compelling state interest in murder? Preventing murder? Yeah. Well, yes. It's yeah. one of the kind of, it's the very reason why we form government, to protect <laughs> yeah. our rights to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Is the least restrictive way of pursuing this, it's not that too much murder is the problem. It's that any murder is a problem. So we have no exemptions to that. All right. Apply that now to the little sisters of the poor and contraception. Is access, is cost-free access to contraception a compelling government interest? Let's hear the argument for that. Is forcing the little sisters of the poor to provide cost-free contraception to their employees the least restrictive way possible of achieving that. And I can think of at least a half dozen other ways in which we could achieve that interest without making the nuns do this. So it would, it should, they should win at the Supreme Court and we should cheer them on because they are doing something vitally heroic and that's they're standing up for their natural rights to live out their faith, not just in the chapel, but at every moment in their lives. Absolutely. And I, and I will say, as a good uh, Reformed Calvinist, I, I, I love the Little Sisters of the Poor <laughs> and what they're doing, and I, I so hope they succeed. Let me finish with two quick questions. The first one is just based on our conversation here. You do you do debates all over the country, uh, and so you go right into the right into the heart of the lion's den there and, and, and stand up for a, what is a very unpopular position in a lot of places that you go. Do you think that the people that you debate have an understanding that what they are attempting to do, these these the policies and the sort of social agenda items that they're attempting to promote, do you think that they they actually understand that these genuinely do burden the conscience and the religious beliefs of people, or do they do they understand and not care, or do they just not understand? Uh, it depends. So I'll give you an example. In the past two weeks, I've debated two different professors uh, about the religious liberty implications after the same-sex marriage ruling. Uh, one of them, and I'm not going to mention his name because I think it reflects poorly on him, he said, but look, those religious adoption agencies and those religious schools are just like the racist charities and the racist schools. They should be treated in the same exact ways. And so he was saying they should lose their nonprofit tax status. They should lose um, uh, their accreditation. It wasn't that he wasn't aware of this. He was fully aware and he thought it was fully appropriate. Another professor, I debated him just two days ago. Uh, he's a professor at Princeton University. Uh, he's a secular liberal John Rawls scholar. Uh, and he says, I'm aware of those cases. I, I haven't looked into them enough, but I don't think, I'm not inclined to think that they should be losing their nonprofit status or losing their accreditation. Mm -hmm. I'm inclined to think that we're a big country and we can let the Catholics be authentically Catholic and the Jews be authentically Jewish and the Mormons be authentically Muslim or Mormon and the Muslims be authentically Muslim. <laughs> and we don't need to have the government uh, coercing them. I don't yet see that justification. Interesting. Um, and so I would say there's a mixed bag. And what our job is, what my job is when I go into these bases, is to try to move as many people towards the, director, the direction of the Princeton professor and not in the direction of the other one. To say, okay. look, you might disagree with me about what marriage is. But do you need to have the government persecute and harass and coerce and penalize me? And I think the answer to that question is no. 
Okay, yeah, the second question is, uh, give us some reason for, maybe a little bit of reason for hope and a little bit of an idea of what an average person can do to help defend really the fundamental freedom that we have, which is the freedom of religion. Uh, Reasons for hope. Reason for hope is the precedent of the pro-life movement. After Roe v. Wade, um, a majority of Americans were in support of abortion rights, but they were not in support of coercing pro-life doctors or nurses or hospitals. The reason why you can be a faithful Christian, you can be a faithful Jew, you can be a faithful Catholic, you can be a faithful Mormon, and be a doctor or a nurse or run a hospital or go to medical school and not be forced to violate your beliefs is that we were able to protect the rights of conscience. We were able to pass laws that protected the rights of conscience for those physicians, for those nurses, for those hospitals, for those medical schools. And it wasn't just because pro-lifers did this, but enough pro-choicers said, even though I'm pro-choice, I actually believe in choice, and therefore I don't think a pro-lifer should be forced to choose an abortion. We need to do the same thing now in the marriage issue. We need to get enough people to say, I'm in favor of gay marriage, but I don't think those who are not in favor of gay marriage should be forced to violate their beliefs. And the way that we do this, and I'll just close on this, is that we do this by helping people understand what it is we believe and why we believe it, and that even if they disagree with us, they have no reason for viewing us as enemies of the human race or as some big threat to civility and the common good, that we can disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, That's what we need to do. We need to be able to help people to see what it is we believe and why it is we believe it. Uh, Ryan Anderson has been with me today. Ryan Anderson from the Heritage Foundation. The book is Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. It's available uh, paperback. It's available Kindle edition. Uh, it was, I, I would encourage everyone to pick up a copy. It's, it's very good if you are a defender of religious liberty to know some facts, to get some grounding, and to be able to, to really give a reason for it that's not just a, sort of an emotional appeal. You need to be able to, to, to defend these important things, and they are important. And Ryan, you are doing uh, incredible work. Uh, we wish you well, and it's been a pleasure to have you back on Radio Free Acting again. Thank you. And with that, we bring another edition of Radio Free Acton to a close. It's been my pleasure to have Ryan Anderson of the Heritage Foundation here with us today on Radio Free Acton. Uh, Thank you so much, Ryan. Uh, If you want to know more about Ryan's work, uh, you can find him at heritage.org. He's uh, got a good archive of articles up there on his page at Heritage. He's also the founder and editor of Public Discourse. Now, this is an online journal that's associated with the Witherspoon Institute, and I can't recommend it enough. It's a fantastic, fantastic journal online. Just just an abundance of really, really great articles on a wide variety of topics. You can find it online at thepublicdiscourse.com, uh, and I can't recommend it enough. Uh, in addition, you can check out Ryan's latest book, entitled Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. These are very important topics, and we really, uh, those of us who care about religious freedom, authentic, fully orbed, uh, and healthy religious freedom, we need to be uh, educating ourselves about what religious freedom has traditionally been understood to be in America. We need to be uh, advocating for that, uh, that fully orbed religious freedom that we are entitled to. Uh, here in the United States. And uh, Ryan Anderson is a great source uh, for information and uh, intellectual ammunition. So please do check him out. And Ryan, once again, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Free Acton. 
That is about all the time we have for Radio Free Acton today, folks. Thank you so much for joining me and uh, for listening in. We do appreciate it, and we hope you'll spread the uh, the links around. If there are other folks that you know of who might be interested in Radio Free Acton and the, the Acton Institute in general, uh, send them our way. Blog.acton.org is, of course, the Acton Institute power blog, news commentary, and information uh, from an Acton perspective every day of the week, uh, barring the weekends, sometimes on the weekends, too. But uh, we keep that uh, pretty well stocked with interesting stuff. So check out blog.acton.org for the general website, acton.org. And uh, once again, my name is Mark Vandermoss. It's been a pleasure to talk with you again today. We hope we'll see you next time on our next edition of Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute. Have a good day, all. Yeah.